So you know if the 6.5 is giving you a result, it's trustworthy. However, LED diodes trick the 6.5 because the spectrum is outside of the range of the 6.5 and it appears to produce massive readings. So you can put a 6.5 under the fitting and get big, big results. What it's not showing you is that in a lot of the fittings to date that have been tested, they've all shown real high amounts of UVC. The longer wavelengths of UVA are, are responsible for creating lumisterol and, and tachysterol, which regulate the production of D3. They are regulating and recycling that process. They are, and the best descriptive word I've read describing this process, they are the brakes. They are stopping D3 production from going on ad infinitum and reaching hypervitaminosis. So theoretically, hypervitaminosis is, is possible with a tight band of 295, 298, let's say 295, if you just provided that without the breaks that the UVA provides. Theoretically, it not, it's possible It's not to get... theoretically possible, oh. that's a fact. Welcome to episode number 95 of the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin. Thank you so much for tuning in today. So today we have a very familiar guest on the podcast, and that is John Courtney Smith, who is the head of science and innovation at Arcadia Reptile. Now, John and I have recorded an episode every summer since 2019. We did one in 2019, one last summer, and now one this summer. And I don't see why we won't just have this continuing to roll on through the years to come, because every time John comes on the podcast, myself and all the listeners love it because we learn so much and this episode is absolutely no exception. Now to open up the conversation we discuss bioactivity. Of course John is an expert on bioactivity considering he wrote the book Bioactivity and the Theory of Wild Recreation but we actually discuss whether or not bioactivity is essential to have a high welfare standard for your animal and we also discuss how it's becoming this buzzword and how people are sort of using it willy-nilly or using the term willy-nilly and without fully understanding what it means to have a bioactive setup and it is really important discussion because I think there's actually some poor care that's happening because people think that they have a bioactive setup and really it's the complete opposite and they're creating a toxic setup when they think that they're doing the right thing. So we discuss that and we discuss where are some of the myths and mistakes people are using and really what it means to be bioactive and of course whether or not it's actually necessary to have an animal thrive. So in the second half of the conversation, we discuss UV LED technology, which I know there's been a lot of buzz lately on the internet. There's a few companies that are producing a couple of different products. And John takes us through a very technical discussion on where the current state of LED technology is and how that interplays with UV production. Now, like I said, this is quite a technical conversation, so many of you may need to listen to this more than once to fully grasp the concepts. I know I did as I was editing the podcast. These concepts became much more clear to me. So you probably want to listen to that section maybe at least twice to fully grasp it. Unless you're somebody who works with lighting on a daily basis, not like myself, those lighting concepts are not easy to grasp at first. So don't be worried if you're listening to this and it's a bit confusing. Listen to it more than once and it will become clear. Now, if you are listening to the audio version, on the YouTube version, I have pasted over some visual aspects and some visual elements that should help clarify some of the concepts. So if you're somebody that's struggling to grasp just the audio, just head over to the YouTube version and you can watch the you know, sort of 20 to 30 minute section of this podcast and it should become much more clear. 
And in the show notes, I've also included the academic papers that John mentions throughout the episode, as well as a test report that shows the testing that was done on a non-specific LED UVB bulb. And so that's all in the show notes as well. So that will supplement this episode. Now, I know as of late, there has been some serious excitement building around UV LED technology. There's a couple of brands producing similar products. And I will say... What John lays out in this episode makes me very concerned about the welfare of the animals that are going to be under these products. Now, John and I don't specifically talk about a brand in this episode. We're talking about LED technology in general as it exists on the earth today. Now, many of you guys have been contacting me with different brands and whatnot, asking my opinion about these. This episode lays out what we have for technology right now as far as LED goes. And as I said, it is actually fairly concerning. So in the episode, I mentioned that if you are somebody that represents one of these products or one of these brands, please contact me if you want to. If you have information that refutes what John lays out here, please. This convert, this podcast is an open door. I have I want you to come on the on a podcast episode and explain your side because there is potentially something that maybe John and I or John is missing from his equation. Now, after listening to the episode, you, you might think it's slightly implausible for that to be the case, but you never know. Of course, as I said, the door is open for anybody to come on the podcast and explain their side if you represent one of these products. Again, everything is in the show notes. Everything is cited and sourced. So I do hope you guys listen to the episode, sort of absorb it, and then you have the right questions to ask these brands. Because at the end of the day, it really is about the welfare of the animal. And as much as I love new companies and you know people producing new products and technology being being pushed to the limit, the animal welfare absolutely needs to come first and there's really no way around that. So before we do jump into that episode, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. If you're looking for those show notes, you can click on the Animals at Home banner at the top and then find the episode tile. There you'll have all the information for each episode. If you'd like to buy a shirt, you can head to the animalsathome.ca slash shop website, pick yourself up a shirt. And if you are interested in joining us on Patreon, head to patreon.com slash animals at home. There you will have early access to every episode as well as the opportunity to submit questions to upcoming guests. So that way you can interact with the episodes on a slightly deeper level. And finally, thank you very much to customreptilehabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Affiliate links are in both the show notes as well as the YouTube description. Let's jump into this episode enjoy. John, welcome back to the podcast. We're making this an annual thing and I'm very happy about it. Yeah, I I always love being here. I can't believe it's been a year though. Every year goes by faster than the last. Crazy town. Well, we have a few topics we want to cover today and we're just going to jump right into this because, uh, you know, everyone loves listening to you speak. So we might as well not waste our time with uh, pleasantries. Let's just jump into the podcast. And I think one thing we wanted to start with was talking about bioactivity because this is you know one of those words i think it's starting to become a buzzword and and there's some myths associated with it and some some incorrect tactics and techniques being used so maybe just to start with why don't we start with how you define bioactivity well it's a massive topic and it's one that that is starting to really concern me actually as a an insider looking in knowing a, a fair bit about it or smattering about it I'm starting to see more and more incorrect in advice being given and, and supposition by people. Now, you know, everybody has a right to uh, enact their own form of care. But when that care can produce animal harm uh, or lower the standards that we're trying to obtain through advancing welfare, then I think, you know, there comes a time when you have to put the brakes on and you have to, 
really start looking at, at, at what's what's going on and what the definitions of these words are. Firstly, bioactivity is not new. I said this last time. You know, the the forefathers of our hobby were keeping a reptile, predominantly amphibians, but a few reptiles in in bioactive systems. You know, over a hundred years ago, simply by digging up the soil and the plants where they found an animal and putting it in a tank of some description and trying to keep it alive. Now, bioactivity, for the purest definition, means that you are recreating a microcosm, a microhabitat from which a species lives, um, and that will have to include the microfauna of the earth, the uh, uh, small and large invertebrates, all of the fungal matter, bacterial, positive bacterial cycles, um, and then generally there's some form of greenery involved in that as well, simply because of the mycorrhizae um, relationship of the fungal network of the earth and their relationship with plants, which is very symbiotic. So if, if we want to look at bioactive, we need to be purists. And, you know, having a tank with a few plants in it is not bioactive. And, but, you know, I, I see so many times people say, oh, I want bio for my pet. It's always the best. So I've, I've bought a few plants and a few springtails and I'm putting the animal in tomorrow. I'm going bio from day one. That's not possible. That, that, that's simply not possible. What you've got is a enclosure with a substrate that has a few insects, the greatest majority of which will die running around and no culture. You know, it pains me to say it, but we, we can, simply because I find it so boring, but we've got a lot of lessons to learn from the aquatics hobby. hobby. You know, you can't go and buy an aquarium on a Saturday, fill it with water and put the fish in Saturday afternoon and, and, and expect that to be okay, particularly with marine aquaria. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you have to wait for that bacterial culture to seed itself into the filters and for the system to settle down and to reach this equilibrium. Equilibrium is a word that we need to keep in our mind, whether we're talking about uh, nutrition, whether we're talking about lighting, whether we're talking about bioactive cycles. The equilibrium of the wild is our goal. You know, if we could take a slice of the wild and it'd be perfect, so we remove diseases, we remove man-made toxins and the threat of predation, we have this herpetological nirvana that would be perfect mm -hmm. and it would be a continuous cycle of recycling and growth. Um, and we can sort of do that with, with bioactive care if we get the procedure right. And so to define bioactivity, we have to look at land-based filtration systems. That, that, that's really what it is. Mm. And the filtration system, regardless whether it's in the earth or the sea, will always, or the lake, will always be made up of um, the bacteria and the bacterial exchanges of that habitat and the microfauna and megafauna that live in that mm. that environment. It's this homogeneity between everything that make it bioactive. 
Yeah, so it's really like conceptualizing that the soil and the substrate and the system as your biological filter like we have in the fish hobby, right? That's what they, you know, there's always talking about establishing a biological filter and we don't think of it necessarily that way, but that's really what we're doing when we're talking about having a bioactive setup. Exactly. You know, and, and, and your inch and a half of substrate and a few sub isopods is, is not bioactive. It's simply not possible. Mm-hmm. You have an inch and a half of substrate and a few critters running around. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that, that's the purest view of it. And when we get into that situation, you know, the amount, the amount of times you see pop up online, I've gone bio, but it smells. Well, it's failed. Yeah, that's not a failed done. aquarium smells. Yeah, you know, reptiles don't smell. Reptile feces smell, and if you have a problem, your your care is either not up to date, you're not doing enough, or your system isn't functioning, or more commonly, isn't able to function. Mm-hmm. And and this is the problem from where I see it. So much so, I I, I wrote for a magazine in, in the UK, a trade magazine last, last month. And I had to really try and categorize the importance of bioactivity. Bearing in mind, I wrote a book on the subject. It, it means a lot to me. I, I really believe in it. But actually, when I, when I have to sit down and see the amount of bad bioactive that's going on, and certainly trawling through YouTube, there is a lot of crud on there and, and shockingly bad advice, even from some of the big names oh, yeah. um, that, that I, have, I had to sit back and say, Do you know what, bioactive is not the most important part of this hobby. It's not important, actually. It is far more important, as we started to discuss last time, to enact naturalistic care. Yes. To really look at the form and shape of the animals that we're keeping and look at the habitat that it thrives in in the wild and try and mimic that as closely as we can that is 99 on the scale of perfection you know we can tip it to 100 if we decide to go bioactive and we can we can do it right um so I would much rather see, you know, I think we can all agree, we don't want to see sterile systems anymore unless it's for a medical need. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've got an animal coming in that I'm going to uh, really pleased to get, but it, it's not been well. So it's going to have to go into a sterile system while it's treated until it's healthy. That That is part of animal husbandry. And it will tick me a bit because I can't see it in the way that I like to keep my animals, but I will eventually once it's healed. And uh, But I, I would much rather see the majority of keepers bring in a level of, of naturalism into their enclosures, starting to look at the, you know, e- even down to the species of the plants that we keep with our animals. You know, I mean, I wonder how many people, you know, if we were really honest, how many of us have put a few strands of, of pothos in a viv and then thought, well, that's it, it's live planted. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in reality, you've got a live plant in there. But is that endemic to where the animal comes from? Is it is it naturalistic? It's easy to grow. We all use it. But I think the, the next evolution that we need to start looking at is rock shape for and and rock type for the, for for animals that live in in scrubland and rocky areas. And you know we we need to start looking at plant shapes and plant species for the arboreal uh, forest animals. And 
I don't I don't think that's too nitpicky. Mm -hmm. You know, when we when we start to look at the at natural selection and the wonders of that process over periods of long, long periods of time, those animals have developed uniquely to use those structures, even down to their body shape, the way that they drink. Um, you know, if we want to see them behave in a natural way, then we have to include natural uh, decoration. Now, I, I'm building a new animal room here. My, my animal room is completely disabled now, gone, and uh, we're rebuilding a new one. And so I'm cluttered around with my animals at the moment, all in holding enclosures and why we rebuild. But, you know, we there's a couple of species that I've got here that I'm really looking forward to getting stuck in on. I've got an Everglades rat snake, I've got a rosy boa, and I've got a big female hognose snake. Now, they are all biotopes that can be really, real interesting builds if you've got a big enough enclosure. Because even in the UK, the items that you need to buy to make those uh, enclosures naturalistic are quite easy to get hold of. Mm -hmm. You know, so we, we start to look at, at prairie species of, of plant and we're looking at um, really mineral rich freely drying arid rich arid soils and and rocky escarpments and and then starting to attune the lighting and the heating and lux levels and on and on and on to that species and i know that you know i, I think our care is okay at the moment but we're going to go to the next level once we start to bring in this level of naturalism now that will be really good for those animals and it's going to be really good for me because I'll be able to see that animal behave naturally. That is better than bad bioactive. Yes. Now I could put, we, how many people keep a hog and, and uh, keep it in a 36, 18, 12 with a inch of substrate, sand maybe, or even earth, sterilized soil, aspen, something like that. And then put a, a few, um, sort of succulent plants in there or tillandsia. Now that that's not bioactive. Yeah, that's yeah. not even naturalistic. So I'm I'm really starting to struggle with that, and it, and it really came to a head with me. I watched a video from a big um, bioactive YouTuber. And actually, the, the designs are really nice. You know, the, the vibs are really nice. And I was watching this, vi this video and I thought, this is, this is really good. I, re I really like this design. I like the process. I didn't agree with all of the parts of the process, but none of us need to agree with everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, right at the video, he said, we're going to make this uh, bioactive and proceeded to blow a couple of dozen springtails off the surface of some water onto moss. And it was like a four-foot build. Now, and then release some like a couple of pairs of $30 isopods in there. That That's not bioactive. Yeah. That isn't. That's a really nicely designed viv with live plants and half a dozen springtails or a couple of dozen springtails blown in there. That's not bioactive. They're, they're not even going to survive. And yeah, at that point, the insects really play absolutely zero role. Zero, nothing. So it's not because the... Because you haven't created a filter, 
you haven't created bioactive. Right. That That's the long and the short of it. So you can't label that bioactive. You could label that naturalistic and live planted. Mm-hmm. No, live planted is not always bioactive. And bioactive is not always live planted. Right. That, that, that's a fact. But to try and give a build extra credibility by introducing a few dozen springtails into a massive build and then calling it bioactive just so that everybody will say that person really knows what they're doing. That's they're all for the bio. It isn't. Yeah. It's a lot. It, it, well, it, it, wheels. it's not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what I was saying. It really has become this buzzword where it's become this gold standard of care and quotes where people just assume that I was talking to a dart frog keeper the other, the other day and they were like, how come all the reptile enclosures are starting to look like dart frog enclosures all of a sudden? Because people just mimic that, you know, bioactive dart frog vivarium and they just think, oh, that'll work for my bearded dragon or whatever. And, and they're just throwing random plants in when really bioactivity should be saved for the hobbyist who wants to tinker with that project. But it's not necessarily the pinnacle of care because you can achieve the pinnacle of care with a naturalistic setup if you don't have the time to interact with a bioactive setup and you don't want to go through that whole process and maintain it properly, then you should be focusing on naturalistic replication. It doesn't have to be bioactive, but I think people think bioactivity means you, if you're not bioactive, you're not doing a good job. So they throw the isopods in and you know it probably pesters their snake and that's all that happens. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I'm not saying that bioactive isn't important at all. Right. You know, I really, I really still believe in it and, and, and I'm, passionate for it but simply due to the level of bad care that i'm seeing and particularly the excuse of oh well and i saw it again the other day well why wouldn't you want to go bio saves you a load of time it doesn't if you're doing it properly you know we're looking at a filtration system a melting pot of life that is in some way self-sustaining but it's only self-sustaining if the apex custodian is looking after that system. And the apex custodian is always the human keeper. Yeah. Always. Without fail. If you don't feed and water, the animals will die. If you don't look at your humidity cycles, you're going to either dry out or go into stagnation. If you don't check your UV lamps, if you don't check your heat lamps, if you're not trimming plants so that life goes on, it all falls apart and you end up with this either death through drying out or death through stagnation and then smell decay. Yeah. So, so, you know, I really still want to see as many people advance into bioactive care, good bioactive care as possible, because I I believe that there are um, interactions with that filter system and the animal that are important. You know, I, I, I can absolutely swear hand on heart that some of the really rare species that I've bred over the years have only flourished and grown up to adulthood to breed because of the bioactive systems that I had. Because, you know, particularly with pygmy chameleons, when I was breed, I bred them to fourth generation before the culture failed. But I bred them to the fourth generation and I would regularly watch the babies everything was incubated in situ so the babies would emerge and a couple of times I saw them coming out of the ground and typically the babies um, would would come out of the ground climb up really high bask for 
to half an hour to an hour. Then they would descend and start to feed. And every single time they would congregate around um, adult waste matter where the springtails were crawling all around the, the defecation and they would be picking off numbers of springtails. And so would the animals. And I, I, we know that springtails are nutritionally positive for, in, in high enough numbers. And I know that at that really tiny and uh, delicate stage of life, that, that, that really helped them to survive. Um, you know, we did really well with it. But you've got to have those numbers. Mm-hmm. I think I, I tried to quantify how to start a bioactive culture in the book. And I think I said, for, for a, a standard sort of three-foot glass viv, from memory, I, I think I suggested that you put between four and six large tubs of springtails in on the first day and then up to four every other week for the first three months to, because so many die off or yeah, drown. You need a or, huge population. You need a huge population, and and that's on top of earthworms and different isopods and all the other sort of insect custodians that we have in there. And and I, I suggested as well, you know, a viv needs to be left for a month before you put the animals yeah, in. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, like, what should that time frame be as far as establishing that? Ideally, I think there's a sweet point about a month okay. afterwards because a, a new forest type bioactive build is going to um, have real peaks and troughs over that time and you'll notice that about between day 10 and day 14 you'll get this fungal bloom all over everything and that that's that's completely normal and your custodians and the um, fungal to plant ratio will will start dealing with that it takes about five days to get through you know you don't need to wash that all off but we just know like as with aquatics you know that system goes toxic before it mm-hmm. it, it becomes safe and it, it's very much the same with with live planted vibs uh, that, that are truly bioactive you're going to get those blooms the plants are going to wilt after a few days before and and some leaves will die off and then they'll come back and start growing this is all very normal and within that time you're going to lose a lot of the custodians insect custodians uh you know springtails have got a really nasty habit of jumping in the water dish Mm -hmm. yeah um, or or escaping or and, and they just have this natural life cycle it takes time to reproduce and for those young to develop and 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 get to a useful stage more so with isopods so it's not always possible particularly if you've got a broken viv and you need to move an animal from one to another but you know in an ideal world if we could leave it 30 days then it it really does allow that system time to settle down and for the custodian numbers to increase and the bacterial and fungal positive bacterial and fungal cultures within the soil to start their own interactions and 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 then you could say we have the basis of a of a bioactive system and then as far as maintenance goes because that's the other thing i think i see people make mistakes right like you're saying oh as soon as you set it up you don't have to do anything anymore what sort of 
like what are some of the mistakes people are making as far as not maintaining? I guess there's, you know, trimming plants and whatnot, like you mentioned, but are there other big ones that you see people not doing that they should be doing? Yeah, they don't clean up turds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a big <laughs> one. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how to be more polite about that. Yeah. You know, they just think that, that an animal can pass its waste willy-nilly and, and that the system will deal with it fine. Um, and, and, and for some species with small waste matter and knolls and, you know, even crested geckos and day geckos, uh, so some of the smaller day geckos, yes, a system will deal with it. It's never going to deal with a bull python. No. Too much. You know, I, mean, I, I conducted quite in-depth, horrendous experiments on this with boas and pythons just to see how long it would take for waste matter to, to disappear when I was writing that book. And it's weeks. Yeah, I can it, imagine. It, you know, urates never go. But um, so, so all the time that that waste matter's in the viv, you, you know, you do have an infection risk. And, and a, not, not just an infection risk, but a, a risk that your already fragile bioactive filter could be tipped over the wrong edge and mm-hmm. fail. It's simply too much for it to deal with. Um, you know, look at some other, like hognose snakes, again, is another, another good example where, they, where they'll pass a lot of hair in the, in the fecal matter. Um, you know, that's, they're never going to break that down. You need to go in and you need to clean that out. You need to be washing your water dishes out unless you've got a filtered pool, you know, and we need to be looking at the way we're watering. Are we overwatering? Are we drowning our plants? Um are we starving our plants? Are we providing enough moisture in the air for the animals? You know, we spoke about this last time. And, yeah. and these things are all still really valid, really important points that, that the apex custodian needs to take into mind. Yeah. You know, without the human keeper, the animal will eventually die. Exactly. And, and your bioactive culture will die off much quicker than the animal. <laughs> yes, yeah. It'll crash and then it'll then the animal goes. And I think, I mean, I, I completely agree. I, I do. You do see a lot of, you know, wet, dank, sort of damp enclosures where people are thinking it's bioactive, but really everything is just saturated and, and wet. And, you know, no wonder there's infections and, and viruses that get spread during that. And really, if anybody wants to dive deep into this, your book is great for that because you walk through the entire process of how to make sure you're doing this properly and like we said, it has to be there for the person who wants to engage in that project, not for the person that just wants to say they've achieved high standard of care while trying to simultaneously reduce the amount of time they're spending on the enclosure. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. No, and it will take, you know, bioactive care will take you longer than sterile care right. to, to maintain in a week. Exactly. You know, it, it really will. You know, even down to your point about trimming plants, I, I like my vivs to be heavily planted. For, for, you know, tree-dwelling species and forest species. I like that. But there comes a point where the plants are not just reducing, but removing light from the bottom. Yeah. And if, if that happens, then your animal is losing part of its ability to photoregulate. You're interfering with the D3 cycle. The, the, one of the most important cycles for reptilian life are the cycles that are surrounding their exposure to sunlight and the, the equilibrium that exists within that. So you need to get in there and trim the plants. You, you have to. 
Yeah. Or you are going to eventually starve your animal to death from light or heat. Yeah, you know, exactly. if they're not able to climb right up. And even worse, if we force them to climb right up because the safe level of energy is missing because of plant growth and they overexpose too high a UVI, then we risk uh, damage to the DNA. Right. Burn. So I think equilibrium, like you said at the beginning, is is really that that focus word. Yeah, it, it has to be. Luckily, we've got a really good Bible that that shows us all about this, and that's the wild. You've just got to look outside. You've just got to get a, a a book about the area that your animal comes from and follow those guidelines A, B, and C, and you can't get it wrong. Yeah, you know that is how they've developed to live. That is the best way for them to live, and we can replicate that with with good naturalism. Exactly, and uh, you know that that really is the way forward. So I, yes, I'm concerned at the moment about the bioactive hobby as a generally um, as a very loose term, simply because so so many keepers seem to be saying that they have bioactive care when they really don't, and then that can lead into them offering less of the required care because they think that it's not or have been incorrectly told that it's not needed. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not here to bash keepers or tell you off or, or anything like that. You know, we've all been taught by somebody or something and we, we, we listen to that and we enact on that. I, I just think we're really at a time now where bio, bio is so big that the chance of it going wrong to the detriment of our hobby you know, bad bad bio is just as detrimental to an animal as keeping in racks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really is. It's just the opposite end of that pendulum. It's, it, it, it's just not good for our hobby yeah. and the animals that we are dedicated to looking after. Absolutely. And, you know, I always tell people, potted plants are a great way to introduce yourself into naturalistic keeping and it's very simple you don't have to worry about drainage and soil and all these things you have potted plants the animals are less likely to turn them up and screw them up and especially with snakes and then you get that added feature of naturalism into the enclosure without having to figure out how are you going to drain soil how are you going to have isopods and all this thing just that's a great simple way to get into it yeah exactly and I'm starting to say say the same thing to people now as well. You know, it is positive to have plants in your enclosure for the simple reason. Yes, they look nice. They're aesthetically pleasing to the human because our eyes are tuned to the colour green. It's pleasing to us. But they increase oxygen in what is always a very poorly ventilated living space. Yeah. Um, they do a good job of work and we should be using them and fakery plastics and resins really need to just disappear now. Mm-hmm. I was, a, I was just appalled last week. I saw another brand releasing more and more decorative lines and now they're releasing a resin coconut, half coconut. Why? <laughs> yeah. I, I I simply don't get that. We've got, now, now, you're encouraging people to use petrochemicals in heated environments that look like something that costs next to nothing and is quite safe to use. Yeah. I don't get the reasoning behind that at all. You know, the interaction between live plants and animals is so important. You know, we've, 
we, we spoke before about how, um, yes, plants are, are filtering out CO2 and increasing O2, they're increasing air quality, they help regulate the humidity cycles and the hydration cycles, but they're also not harbouring dangerous organic compounds and they're not harbouring um, dangerous bacterial bloom because they're self-sterilising, they're Mm self-cleaning. It's a safe, natural environment for an animal to live and walk around. The the plastic generation does need to go. You know, we need to now, that's it, let's walk away. Yes, it's easy, but it's not good for the animals. Yeah, exactly. Then we flip into naturalism and the importance of naturalism, and it's really easy. You know, it's not... We're not looking at a difficult build here. You know, if you if you if you wanted to create a uh, a naturalistic environment for your day gecko, which you already have, it's not difficult to to have a nice substrate, a big enough tank, and put in some like bamboo tubes because that's quite natural for the type of plants that live there. And then have a look at some of the plants that are available in your country that come from Madagascar that are safe to use. That's natural. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, the most important of natural point, the most important point of naturalistic care for your day gecko is to give it enough space to move around. Yeah, exactly. And to set up a territory. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm, we're, we're not looking at root and branch change here. What we, what, what, what I want people to do is to look at at the advice that's being given and to start filtering out this. We've put a tub of springtails in and a couple of isopods. Now it's bioactive because that's that's not true. If people want to go into bioactivity, let's do it and let's do it properly. And it will be better for the animals. Yes. But sure. the, yeah. But like we say, the key peakkeeper has to be engaged in that process. So, yeah, I think that's a great way to wrap up that topic. Is there anything else you wanted to say on that? Or do you think we should uh, move on to the next the next no, thing. no, no, that's, that's fine. That's yeah, fine, okay, yeah. yeah, I think that was great. So the next topic we want to discuss was UV LED bulbs. Now, obviously, there's a few things. Obviously, you represent Arcadia, so I think no matter how well you present the science here, people will see it as a biased opinion, which is actually okay. You know, you're going to present your thoughts. And then we've been seeing lots more buzz about these UV LED bulbs online recently. I don't know what John is going to say here. I haven't listened to his thoughts on these bulbs, but... I don't want to leave the door closed and just kind of slam shut on somebody. So if somebody has a response to what John's about to say, please contact me and we can kind of discuss it that way. But but let's just jump into it. Let's talk about UV LED bulbs and are these, is it possible? It's a huge topic and one that's going to take a few minutes to explain. Yes, it's possible to have UVB LEDs and it's been possible for nearly 10 years. The... Good thing about LEDs is that they produce a huge amount of photons for a small amount of energy. You know, that's why the Jungle Dawn bar works so well. It's massively bright for the small running cost. And, um, you know, that's great for visible light. The trouble with UV LEDs is that they only exist within very, very tight bandwidths so if you you could look someone in the eye and say i have a uvb led and they will have an led that exists within the spectrum 
or the accepted spectrum of UVB, what they can't do is create a an emulation of sunlight. Mm-hmm. So they, they are very, very spiky and miss out huge chunks of the natural solar spectrum. Now, this, this has been proven over time um, to be effective in producing vit- vitamin D3. There are a number of scientific papers out there where um, the studies have shown. Um, I've got a few here in front of me. This one is by Kalajan et al. And we've got another one from um, Veronikis et al. And these studies have been particularly put, put together to study the production of vitamin D3 in the skin of human tissue with very narrow band UVB LEDs and then to see whether that will create vitamin D3 uh, stores. Does it work? Does it create D3? And on the face of it, these papers are successes. The LEDs work. They create D3. Nobody can argue that. Actually, um, Cusack et al. proved exactly the same with bearded dragons. That that was a really bad study, actually, because they compared low output LEDs with very low output, low output fluorescent lamps and then come to the conclusion that the LEDs were producing loads of D3, which, and I'll explain why a bit later. But they work, they create D3. Uh, that, that's not up for discussion. The problem is, is that they are tuned at 295 and 298 nanometers. So you have an LED that is being produced in the medicinal field, particularly to as a remedy for hypervitaminosis and things like Crohn's disease and autoimmune disease and uh, kidney failure. We're look, they're looking for treatments for to increase D3 in the body naturally quickly. Now, these studies looked at, pro- at producing two, 295, 298 nanometers um, retrospectively and how much D3 that they would create. And what they found is for very low power input, um, they could create quite substantial amounts of D3 in a very short period of time. And that's the watchword. These studies were creating near optimal levels of D3 with between two and 11 minute exposures, okay? So these devices are being created medicinally to be used over portions of human skin to help rectify the diseases that are affected by a shortage of D3 and to boost the body's ability to make D3 because of that. So they can I not- pause you just for one quick second? Yeah. If, so are there, as far as those LED bulbs go, the 295 nanometer and the 298 nanometer, are those the only two UV producing LED bulbs that are created right now? No, because, because of the new gallium LEDs, you can pretty much dial in Okay. A nanometer. And that diode will produce that exact that thing. Very small. So you get you get a very small curve like this. It will go up, say at two two nine two ninety, 
and then peak at 295 and then it comes back down at 297. So you've got energy within two or three nanometers. Gotcha. But you, what you can't have, and this is the problem, you can't have a UVB LED that goes from 295 to 310. And have more of a bell curve as far as the spectrum no, goes. And that, that's exactly what you need. You need this right. equilibrium. You need this full spectrum. And actually, what you don't want is a bell curve. What you want is energy that starts at kind of 295 and then continues to go up right and through till you get to uh, infrared. Okay. Because that that's the spectrum of sunlight. Mm. There is far more energy in the longer wavelengths, more photons, than there is at the shorter wavelengths. And actually, energy at 295 and 296 and 297, 298 is actually very rare in natural sunlight. It's present, but because of the quantity of photons within, within that portion of the spectrum, it's a very, very tiny amount. So this is a really interesting point. Um, and, and everything that I'm saying today has been published publicly. Uh, you can find comments from independent professionals on the reptile lighting groups, AHH, and anywhere you want to look. But I was reading the how the different wavelengths are responsible for D3 production in the skin, um, how it's not exactly how we th thought it would be. You know, we, we, I think we can agree that maybe between 295 and 298 nanometers are the optimal, is the optimal wavelength for producing vitamin D3, okay? That you can use the lowest amount of power to create the highest amount of D3 within those wavelengths. But actually, there's, as you move up through the spectrum, there's far more energy, more photons available in natural sunlight as we go up through the spectrum. So as we ascend up into two, two, three, 10 nanometers, for example, I'll just read it here to remind myself, um, three, 10 nanometers is, about, is only 22% as efficient as 298. Okay, so 298 is more efficient at producing D3, but and 310 is 22% of that efficiency. But because of the increased energy, because there's more photons at 310 in natural sunlight, it actually creates in the body six and a half times more D3 than 298 does. Huh. It's a higher provider because there's more of it. Right. And as we go up again, 314 nanometers is... 4.9% as effective as 298, but it creates two and a half times more D3 than 298. And as we work our way up towards UVA, the uh, production of, of D3 decreases. Right. Okay, but it, even though it's decreasing, it's still more efficient than 298 because 298 is rarer. Gotcha. There's less photons being produced by the sun in that range. And... Um, this is a real problem. So if we have lamps that are attuned to 295, 298, 299, whatever they are, within those two or three nanometers, you can say that you have a UVB LED, and it is. Um, what we don't have is the balance of sunlight. And we have an even bigger problem when it comes to UVA, 
So as we are coming up through the spectrum, as we go along like this, energy is increasing as you go through the solar spectrum into towards visible. There is a massive amount more energy available within the UVA wavelengths than there are the UVB wavelengths, okay? And UVA is absolutely vital to the D3 cycle and, and to life as a whole, okay? But we... we we kind of gloss over UVA as, as being there for reptile vision and maybe it's useful for plants and skin sterilization and being antifungal and antibacterial, which it is, but we kind of gloss over it and concentrate on UVB. Well, actually, as we work out, of, if, we, if we're going along the spectrum, along the line of UVB and into UVA before we get into blue, the amount of physical energy, watts, <laughs> measurable energy, um, is increasing by multitudes. That means there is far more UVA than there is UVB. But as we work through UVA, we're, we, you can still see, as I've said there, 314 nanometers um, is still creating two, two and a half times more D3 than 298 is. But we're starting to get into UVA. And as we, as we ascend into UVA, yes, it's becoming less volatile in create or, or responsible for creating D3, but it doesn't just switch off. It's becoming less and less responsible for creating D3 in the body, but it is creating D3 in the body, mm. which is why um, the old nightclub black lights saved so many lives back in the late 80s and early 90s. They were producing half a percent UVB, but shed loads of UVA, like stupid amounts. And that huge amount of UVA was enabling those animals at close range to produce enough D3 to sort of stave off MBD. Mm. It, this was the evolution of reptile lighting. So, yes, it looked awful and it's old hat now. But it worked, even though it was UVA, because the lower ranges of UVA are important for D3 production. As we work up into the higher wavelengths of UVA, we start to see an even more important series of cycles that, that regulate the production of, of D3. So, you know, UVA, um, the longer wavelengths of UVA are, are responsible for creating lumisterol and, and tachysterol, which regulate the production of D3. They are regulating and recycling that process. They are, and the best descriptive word I've read describing this process, they are the brakes. Mm. They are stopping D3 production from going on ad infinitum and reaching hypervitaminosis. So theoretically, hypervitaminosis is is possible with a tight band of 295, 298, let's say 295. If you just provided that without the breaks that the UVA provides, theoretically, it not, it's possible. It's to not get... theoretically possible. Oh. That's a fact. Okay, gotcha. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So, and and that's proven with the scientific papers that you know the the longer the exposure, they created more and more D3, and it didn't stop, and the more energy they put through those LEDs, so the more photons they created, the, the higher the amount of D3 was produced, and it doesn't stop. And that was proven in Cusack's paper as well. It, they just 
carried on producing D3 and it kind of falsified a positive result. The, the problem here is, is that we lose the brakes. Right. If we don't have enough UVA, and, and actually that I've completely described that wrong, if we don't have enough UVA within the correct spectrum, which is the terrestrial spectrum for UVA, we effectively remove the antifungal, antibacterial cycles, we affect reptilian vision, and we remove the breaks from D3 production. Now, some of the units that I've seen, and I've seen all of these sort of prototype LEDs over the years, some of these units do boast that they have a UVA diode. But if you look at the look at the planogram of the LEDs on any of these brands, I'm not going to mention a brand. That's a highly deplorable thing for one brand to mention another. I would never do it. So, but just look, there's plenty of brands. These people, the, the two main brands that are out at the moment, there's other people doing it as well. You know, it's not just them. You can look at any of these brands and see how many diodes are being used that they call D3 and how many diodes that they're using being called, uh, sorry, UVB and, and how many are being called UVA. There's usually one or two within a, a device. Now, that's a problem within itself because LED is point source by, di by definition and invisible, don't forget. Right. You can't tell. Or if when you're using your projection of light from these different fittings, all you're looking at are the diodes that are producing visible light. There's no indication there at all what the pattern of ultraviolet energy is and how that mixes. Because don't forget, sunlight is an equilibrium. It's a homogeneous source. All of the spectrum is, av is, is available at any given point from UVB to infrared B. It's, it's all there, all mixed up in perfect yeah. balance. And it's that perfect balance that keeps life alive. So if we create devices, and it's really easy to, I've got one here, actually. This is a, I'm not embarrassed about it at all. This was a, a UV LED sample that somebody sent me in a typical sort of E27 thing. Yeah. Now, this, this thing appears to be producing vast amounts of UV when you check it, but actually it is deadly dangerous. This will kill your animals. I've right. kept it. I've kept it simply to so that I can learn lessons from it in, in the future. Um, so what's stopping why? somebody from taking a device like that with a bar where you have more space for more diodes and then filling out the spectrum more is it is that mainly like the issue you're just talking about we don't know how well it blends when it hits the animal like what if you just had a uh, several different maybe like 30 different diodes with different wavelengths and that's the only way to do it okay. you're going to need you're going to need to do it properly with led with the technology that's available now you're going to have to have every wavelength that is available from terrestrial sunlight Represented, So that means using many, many diodes to cover that whole spectrum within their nanometerage bandings. Then somehow you've got to tune that so that as you work up from UVB to UVA, that they get more and more powerful. And then somehow you've got to get all of those beams to cross in the center. And then you've still got an invisible lamp. So then you have to add more diodes in to add invisible light, that's the easy part. The, the difficult part is to create diodes and, and series of diodes 
that cover that whole spectrum. Now, one of the real problems I'm finding is, is that none of the brands, and there's about eight different brands working on this at the moment, not one of them has issued a SPD, a, a, a spectral drawing, a proof from a, from a, a spectrometer of the spectrum of the lamp. They're saying it creates UVI of this. It has this much UVA. It's this color. You know, with 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 UV lamps, you have to have a spectrum, right? And you know, the good fluorescent technology now, the spectrum between UVB and UVA um, is very close to the same pattern now. It's as close as it's ever going to get to natural sunlight, and actually. Um, is is a really good indication for the production of D3 and the self-regulatory cycles around D3 in the body. You know, that's very easy to measure. When you start to look at, and I have got, because I've got spectra, spectrometer, um, when you look at the spectrum of the LEDs that, that I've seen at the moment, there are massive spaces missing in the spectrum and uh, I drew one out somewhere here and actually the what 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 the spectrum looks like um in in one of these LEDs here you can see this if I hold it up so at at, at this part of the spectrum we're on 270 nanometers that's UVC okay that's deadly dangerous yeah and we've got absolutely nothing at all until we hit kind of 270. We're still in UVC. So we've got a pop here at UVC. Uh, sorry, at UVC, a peak at 293, then absolutely nothing in UVA until we reach between 370 and 390 nanometers. Gotcha. Really rough there's nothing on the spectrum there at all, which means the lamp is producing UVC into UVB, then absolutely nothing until we get almost out of UVA and into blue light. This represents a spectrum of light that is absolutely not like the sun. It's the absolute reverse of the sun. And, um, you know, that that's a real problem that... There must be testing that's going on here yeah. to make sure that this is safe. I have spoken to every single independent tester of lighting that, that I know, and none of them have been sent one of these lamps to evaluate pre-sale, um, apart from one lamp which was withdrawn from sale on the advice of the person who tested it because it had so much UVC in it. And... You know, this, that information's published, that you can see that easily on Reptile Lighting Group. Um, it, 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 it just seems really strange that nobody will present, a, for, the, for the products that are coming out, nobody will, will, will put a, a spectrometer under it. Now, they may say, and this is where, where some confusion will come around, because solar meters are really good. You know, we can test for UVC, we can test for UVB, we can test for UVI with solar meters. Okay, we, we all know that and we trust them. And the 6.5, solar meter 6.5 index meter is excellent because it doesn't need any recalibrating. It's measuring the correct spectrum um, 
to show us the amount of energy that we that's being used in the wild that can also relates to uv lamps and that spectrum also shows us the ability for that portion of the spectrum to create d3 so you know if the 6.5 is giving you a result it's trustworthy however LED diodes trick the 6.5 because the spectrum is outside of the range of the 6.5 and it appears to produce massive readings. So you can put a 6.5 under the um, fitting and get big, big results. Um, what it's not showing you is that in a lot of the fittings to date that have been tested, they've all shown real high amounts of UVC right the way down to 250 or nanometers or so. I mean, this is germicidal stuff. Right. Um, and because the spectrum is so skewed between the output of the LED and what the index meter's reading, it's showing you that there is a UV index. So in your mind, you're thinking that's safe. But actually, there's so much energy within the lower part portion of the actual spectrum, that that's what it's reading. It's just on the edge of the range of the UV of the 6.5. And it's not taking for it to, into account that there's no UVA and it's not taking into account that there's no UV, that there's loads of UVC. So you can't at the moment use the 6.5 to test these LED fittings and, and have an accurate result it gets even worse because you could then use the um, solar meter UVC meter and, and come back with a, a reading of zero. Well, you will get a reading of zero because once again, the wavelengths produced by the LEDs are outside the range of the meter. Right. It's not able to read it. So we have vast amounts of energy below 280 nanometers, which is, as we all know, you know, it's um, responsible for cellular damage. This, this is the portion of sunlight that's most destructive. Um, and, and the meter's not reading it. So, the, 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 you know, when you, when you look at the spectrum with a spectrometer, you'll see the whole picture. You'll see that there's loads of energy here where it shouldn't be, none, and then we've, it's picking up the visible diodes. You correlate that against the meter readings from solar meters, and you think, this doesn't even look similar. Right. So the, the spectrometer really is, or is that what you call this? Is that what the device is called, spectrometer? Spectrometer, yeah. Yeah, that, that is really the answer there. And as you've kind of already laid out, to lit, to have a theoretical LED bar that produced L, uh, UV, it is it would be quite a sophisticated amount of uh, quite a sophisticated piece of technology that isn't available yet. I mean, it would be a crazy amount of work. It would be a crazy amount of money. Right, the, these diodes are not cheap, not at all, and you would need a a lot of them. You know, you you're, you're looking at multiple diodes per wavelength, right the way up through the UV spectrum and being sure that none of those are producing anything below 295. You know, we don't want to see any energy under 295. Ideally, that it should be trace or, or nothing. 
under 295. That's depending on the type of lamp, you know, certain lamps have a little blip at 292, but it's, there's hardly anything there. Depends on the, the, the formulation of the lamp. But we, do, we certainly don't want to see anything below 290. I would say 295. Just, just to be fair, but we certainly don't want to see anything below there. When you're starting to see huge amounts of energy at 270, 280, 285, you've got a lamp that um, is able to cause ocular damage, that is able to cause skin damage, um, but that will also, because it's got its peak at, at 298, will produce vast amounts of, U, of D3, ad infinitum so <laughs> we might have to use another aquatics analogy if you've got an animal that's that that's been kept for a long period of time with no uv and you use one of these what we now from all the data that i can see looks to be a, a dangerous piece of kit If you put that over that animal and it goes and baths for an extended period of time, it's because it's seeking out D3 and that D3 is having an impact on its body. But it hasn't been there long enough for the detriment of that lamp to affect it. Okay, if the if there was a massive amount of photons, at 180 nanometers or 200 nanometers, then it would burn really quickly. But as we you know, the the lower you get in the spectrum, the more dangerous the spectrum is so because because it's sort of further though it's still uvc uh, because it's further up in the spectrum it's still going to cause damage but it will take a longer time to do it but they will be producing loads of d3 and they will be feeling fantastic and they will seek it out and they'll sit there and bask well what's going to happen in the long term are they going right. to be damaged are they going to carry on producing d3 until they you know the brakes are off there's, there's no regulatory processes going on here at all. Um, now, let's just put that into context. I saw an a piece of advertising for a UV LED fitting, um, and part of the advertising said that it had as much UVA in it as a halogen lamp. Well, that, that's about, a halogen lamp produces about 15 microwatts of, of uh, if you're measuring it on a UVA meter a bog standard lamp, a decent reptile lamp is producing over a thousand. Right. Now a mercury vapor lamp produces 2000 microwatts of UV within the UVA. So are we, uh, are these people box ticking UVB tick UVA? Yep. We can measure it. Tick UVI. Oh yeah. 10. It must be great. And it's safe because it's reading UVI and UVI is safe. Tick. Have they not run it under a spectrometer? Because if you do, 10 to 1, unless, unless somebody's invented something that none of, us, none of us know about, and speaking to our teams in Germany, you know, we, we work with the biggest lighting manufacturer in the world, this, a huge company. Everybody is saying this is not possible. Right. You, we, can't, we cannot replace fluorescent lighting. A, because fluorescent lighting is proven safe and effective. It's a affordable buy-in, and in T5, it's quite energy efficient, and it it, it covers a, a very wide area. You know, we need to cover that whole animal, not just little spots over the animal. Right. 
And that needs to be the benchmark. If we're going to use LED lighting for reptiles, it needs to be a one-on-one replacement for fluorescent because fluorescent T5s are the best. They have the most accurate spectrum that we can measure accurately with industry meters. Um, and they are a true flood source that can, that's directional. And, you know, you can buy them up to four foot long. You know, we like we, we use T5s for lighting anything from fruit beetles to crocodiles and elephants. Right, you know, exactly. I've, I've done everything with them. And they're proven safe and effective. As long as the manufacturing process doesn't change, they are safe. Can you quickly run through just briefly how the, the, the fluorescent bulb functions and how it, how it does produce a wider spectrum? Because I think I know lighting is very confusing to people, and that's probably a bit of a can of worms. So if there's like a, a Coles Notes or a Spark Notes version of just so people, you know, we've talked about the LED and, and how does that differ from the fluorescent? Okay, so a fluorescent lamp is quite a simple device, really. You have a glass tube. Um, with the case of reptile lights, that, that is, that's a special glass, a crystal glass that's used to allow UV through, but also blocks UVC. So a good manufacturer UV lamps will have a 100% UVC stop, and that's a physical barrier. The glass blocks it. It will not let it out. So you have a glass tube. On the inside of that tube is painted a phosphor mix, and phosphors are rare earth metals, and uh, mineral compounds, and they react to produce photons of light when they're energized by mercury in, in vaporized mercury. Um, so, so when 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 mercury, I'm going to try and make this as simple as possible. So you've got a glass tube, a phosphor coating. It's the phosphor coating that denotes the color and the spectrum of that lamp. If the phosphor mix is always the same, the output of that lamp will always be the same. Then you've got a tiny bit of mercury, very tiny now, because everything's been optimised, and you've got heaters, electrical heaters at the end of each lamp. The heaters atomise the mercury, the the tube's full of argon, so it has to have one of the noble gases in there, otherwise you you can't have electron flow without argon. At the mercury atomizes and goes into electron flow as the lamp is beating on off or, and send, sending uh, um, electrons up and down the tube backwards and forwards, 50,000 beats a second in T5. Um, and, and that electron flow causes UVC to be made. Okay, so germicidal lamps are mercury heated in argon creates electron flow and it's pure uvc that comes out and that's what you're using for for pond sterilizers marine aquarium sterilizers hospital sterilization it's the same process for for any fluorescent lamp for for light emit visible light emitting lamp and and uh, reptile lamps that uvc is used by the phosphors to create a spectrum and then the uvc is is blocked by the glass so it filters it out completely. It's a very easy process designed decades and decades ago. It's very stable, easy to recycle. Every part of a fluorescent lamp's recyclable. Um, and it works on, on mercury vapor causing electron flow, in electron flow, which creates UVC. UVC um, activates phosphors to glow then the, that's the light that we see. They all work the same. 
Gotcha. And because the phosphor powder is is a mix, the whole tube is covered in that mix. So every single part of the phosphor that comes into contact with UVC inside the tube will glow that colour. You get a flood. It can't change. The spectrum can't go, oh, UVB here, bit of red here. It's 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 completely mixed it's blended up. blended right from the genesis, yeah. Yeah, it's it, it, they really are very good. So if we want to have reptile lighting, ethical, ethical, safe and effective reptile lighting, we need LEDs to mimic T5s. Right. So, yeah, yeah like I said, I, I'm happy to have, there's somebody out there working on this product and they want to have a response to this, go for it. I would love to hear that, that dialogue, I, but... I would love to hear it because from everything that I've seen and certainly all the samples that I've tested, which do seem to be from the same factories as the images that I've seen, mm-hmm. everything is exactly the same. Far too fewer diodes, too far spacing out, and the diodes are not able to create a, a continuous spectrum. And if you don't have a continuous spectrum, you have the risk of overproduction of D3. You can't turn the brakes off. There's the risk of, of UVC even though that it will show zero on a UVC meter because the UVC meter is reading the wrong spectrum. <laughs> right. It's, it's outside of its tolerance. Um, there's yeah. a risk. There, I really there, need to know. Yeah, there's definitely I've some always concerns. said when it's possible, my brand will be the first brand to do it. Yeah. When it's you possible. guys have been working on it. We've been working on it for years and years and years, and there's, mm. there's just nothing. I, I've... I've got an idea of how to do it and we have some trials going on and it's looking favorable, but I, I can't see anything for the next five years. The tech's just not there. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. And I think I, I know I had lots of people, especially with those new products coming out, people were messaging me, asking me what my opinions were. And I, I have no idea. I don't have an opinion on it cause I don't understand it fully. So I'm happy you're able to lay that out for us. And then, um, and maybe if there's any of those uh, those papers that you have, maybe you can send them to me and I can include them in the show notes if people want to go through those. If they're, if they're public papers, I can include links and whatnot. I think, I know we're getting close to the end here because you're uh, on, on a pinch for time. And we did want to just quickly, maybe we'll wrap up with discussing YouTube. You kind of mentioned it at the beginning uh, when we we're talking about bioactivity and whether or not YouTube has a positive force in the hobby or if it's kind of misleading us in some way. So I just, maybe we'll wrap up with your thoughts there. Yeah, it absolutely can be a positive force. And there's some really good YouTubers out there. Um, uh, I just hope that the people that are, are not giving the correct messages start to learn and change their, their narrative. You know, there's some real bad advice, real bad. You know, even I, I saw one video from a, a channel that was really, really good. Um, talking about leopard geckos and their care was, you know, excellent. But then they started talking about how cute enigmas were. Now, mm. You know, th- that's not right. That's not good for our hobby. And nobody should be drawing attention to the enigma or encouraging people to buy one if it's, you know, I, YouTube can be a force for good. And, you know, it's the second largest search engine in the world now, apparently. Yeah. yeah. So so it, we need it, but we, we do need we need better sort of self-regulation within our hobby to filter out the bad advice somehow. Of course, you can't because of free speech, but I fully support good YouTubers. Yeah. A- absolutely. 
Um, but it can really put people on the wrong on the wrong uh, pathway. You know, it, we, we said earlier about the person who created a wonderful, stunning enclosure there and then just blew off of water some springtails like this, and that's it, it's bioactive. That, yeah. That's wrong advice. It's not yeah. truth, it's, it's, it's a lie. Yeah, so I, I totally agree. There, there is a, it, it is tough. I mean, one of the things that happens on YouTube, and this is just social media in general, that the, the larger the following, the more credible that source is, which is not actually how good information is derived. It's just, you know, if someone has a large subscriber count, it doesn't mean what they're saying is correct. It's just that's sort of the impression that even me, when I'm Googling something, if I'm looking for something that's nothing to do with reptiles, maybe I'm looking to, you know, fix my car and I search a thing, I'm going to gravitate towards the channel with the most subscribers because I feel like that's the most authority on the subject. But yeah. that's one of the issues with YouTube is that's, that's just not the case. No, no, it's not. It's not, you know, and there's this, there's far more important things out there to, but was, or, or, or small change, important small changes that keepers can make. You know, cover the sides and back of your enclosure. You know, that, we said it last time, that will massively reduce stresses. You know, that is, if you're not going to do anything else, covering the back and sides of your enclosures will have more of a positive impact on your animal than bad bio will. Right. Yeah. So exactly. I'd much rather people do that than nothing at all. And it's really easy. <laughs> and it's really, really easy. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> well, John, I really appreciate this. We've laid out a lot of topics here. I know that uh, we don't want to butt up into your next meeting here. So is there anything else that you wanted to add before before we let you go? No, I think that's it. I think um, we, 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 we've got a lot to give still. There's a yeah. lot still to be learned and a lot of research to do. New product will form off of the back of that. I, I really feel like the hobby's done something good in the last five years. Um, and I think there's going to be natural stumbling blocks along the way. Um, but if, as long as we can address them quickly, we can move on and continue to grow. I think that we're at the start. I think we're at the start of something even more exciting. I think new tech is going to be available that will, that will help us to increase our care even further I can, I've just got a feeling that things are going to change again. So um, it's a good time to be in the hobby. Yeah. But we just need to be careful of the advice we're giving people and what we listen to. I completely agree. And I agree. It does really feel like we're swelling up into something much more special than, than we've been doing. We're on the right path. So I'm very much looking forward to see how the next five five or six years goes in, inside herpetoculture. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, can you I, I agree. Can you let everybody know where they can find more information on yourself and Arcadia? Um, the, the, the easiest place is ArcadiaReptile.com. You awesome. know, we, we don't sell product. We're, we're not there to sell it to you directly. Our websites are purely educational and to tell you about how our products work and why. So don't, don't think you can go on there and buy product. You can't. Um, but you will see our range on there and ex explanations of how it works and why it works. And, um, you know, our lighting guides and feeding guides and, and everything. That lighting guide covers over 400 species now. You can yeah. type in the common or Latin name of over 400 species and we'll tell you exactly what lamp you need to buy for your species in your particular size and type of enclosure. It's a really powerful tool. It's all free. 
Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And I'll make sure I link in for both Canada and United States as well as Europe where you can actually buy the lamps as well and the products because people are always asking, where do I get it? But it's uh, pretty simple to find. But I'll make sure I link that. And John, thank you so much. This is, as always, it's an absolute pleasure and always mind-blowing talking to you. So I appreciate the time today. And I'll see you next year. Exactly. Yeah, 2022. Wow. Yeah, can you imagine? All right, that is the end of that episode. John, thank you so much for joining me. As always, I already cannot wait till the summer of 2022 and we can do that again because every time you come on the podcast, I leave with a giant to-do list of things to do. And so I really do appreciate you spending the time and explaining that complicated topic. I know that's not an easy thing to lay out because it is such a complex topic, but I think you did a great job and I really appreciate you making that clear for myself as well as the listeners. So to listeners, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Again, that lighting topic is complex. So if you're at the end of the episode and you've only listened to it once and you're thinking, I don't fully grasp it, don't be afraid to go back and listen to it again. And again, if you're listening to this on the audio version only, head to YouTube and try again because there's the visual elements that will make it slightly more clear. And as I've said a couple of times in this episode, if you are a representative of a brand that's producing an LED UVB bulb and you want to refute some of the claims that were made in this episode, you can do that. Just contact me. You can find me at animalsathomenetwork.com or on Instagram at animalsathomeca. I'm all over the place. Just search Animals at Home. You will find me. You can find me on Facebook and whatnot because I this is a open conversation. And like I said at the beginning, if there's something that was missed here, maybe there's a piece of the technology that we're not fully grasping, then we want to know about we want to fully understand that these bulbs are going to yield a high welfare for animals because at the end of the day that is all that matters so if you are sitting there and you're thinking some of this was wrong please contact me i want to make sure the whole picture is there so the the consumers and the keepers can make the right decision that is going to give them a product that's going to make their animal happy and healthy If you did enjoy the episode, make sure you share it on social media. That always does help. Even if you have a very small amount of followers, I mean, most people who just have a personal account don't have a huge amount of followers. Even finding one extra person to listen to the episode helps because that really does expand sort of almost compound interest in a way. So if you you do share it, I do always appreciate it. And normally I'll come find you to thank you on your social media account. If you would like to join us on Patreon, head to patreon.com slash animals at home. There you can find early access to episodes as well as the opportunity to ask upcoming guests questions. Thank you very much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you are in the market for new reptile enclosures, go check them out. There's an affiliate link in both the YouTube description as well as the show notes that is an affiliate link. So if you do make a purchase, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And of course, that helps me keep the lights on in this room so we can keep listening to awesome podcasts. That is the end of that episode. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you guys next week.